Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Bridget O'Gorman and Candid West. In this week's podcast, we'll be discussing how white hat hackers could potentially earn nearly a million dollars as they successfully hack a Tesla, why GoDaddy has been injecting JavaScript into some of its customers' websites, how credit card skimmers are turning their attention to smart cards, and another attack against a cryptocurrency exchange, this time in New Zealand. But first, some of you may remember that in 2017, the US Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, the agency charged with regulating the stock market, said that they'd suffered a serious data breach in 2016, with attackers stealing data that could have been used to facilitate insider trading. In other words, buying or selling shares based on information not yet in the public domain. So according to the SEC, the hackers exploited a vulnerability to gain access to its corporate filing facility known as the Electronic Data Gathering Analysis and Retrieval System, or EDGAR for short. Uh, EDGAR is used by listed companies to make official SEC filings such as statements on earnings or acquisitions. Well, there's been a development in the case because on Tuesday, two men were charged in relation to the attack. The men, Artem Radchenko and Alexander Yeromenko, are both residents of the Ukrainian capital Kiev and have been charged with committing securities fraud conspiracy, wire fraud conspiracy, computer fraud conspiracy, wire fraud and computer fraud. So according to the indictment, the pair allegedly hacked into Edgar and stole thousands of files, including lots of annual and quarterly earning report containing confidential information. It's then alleged that the defendants and others profited by selling access to that confidential information and trading on it too prior to its distribution to the investing public. The indictment document sheds a lot of light on the attack. For example, when it was first revealed in 2017, the breach was reported to have occurred during 2016. However, according to the indictment, it lasted for more than a year, between February 2016 and March 2017. To gain access to Edgar, the defendants uh, apparently used a series of targeted cyber attacks, including directory traversal attacks, phishing attacks, and infecting computers with malware. So Iremenko is alleged to be the hacker in the case and has already previously been charged with involvement in a similar conspiracy to hack the computer systems of three newswire organizations and steal press releases containing confidential financial information before they hit the newswires. Radchenko is meanwhile alleged to be the person who recruited rogue traders who were provided with the stolen files and uh, profited from this information. Now, both the suspects are in Ukraine, so it remains to see if they'll be arrested or extradited. However, the case is a timely reminder that even though cybercrime can cross borders, it doesn't prevent authorities from investigating these incidents fully, identifying suspects and bringing charges against them. So for something completely different next, uh, Tesla has been making the headlines for many reasons, both good and bad in recent years, but this week it's in the news because the Pwn to Own hacking competition has added a Tesla car to its contest. Yeah, that's right. Um, so in case anyone listening doesn't know, Pwn to Own is a, it's a well-known hacking contest that invites security researchers to investigate various devices and technologies. And it's been running for more than a decade now and it offers cash prizes for the discovery of exploits that can compromise security. So over the years, exploits that compromise the security of web browsers, virtual machines, computers and phones have all featured in the competition. 
But this year, for the first time, the competition is adding um, this new category and is asking researchers to investigate a Tesla Model 3 to see if they can discover any exploits that may compromise the security of the electric vehicle. So as you said at the start, Dick, there's nearly a million dollars, there's $900,000 of prizes on offer for this um, category. And the biggest prize of a quarter of a million dollars is an offer for hacks that can execute code on the car's gateway, autopilot or VC sec. So the gateway is the car's central hub, basically, that connects its powertrain chassis and other components and processes the data that they send. Uh, the autopilot is obviously you know self-explanatory in a self-driving car and um, while the vc sec is responsible for um you know security features on the car including the car alarm and to take the course of a million prize the hackers must discover exploits that force the gateway the autopilot or the vc sec to communicate with a rogue base station or another malicious entity um, but that's not the only area in which the, they'll be paying out prizes in. So the competition will also pay out $100,000 for hacks that attack the car's key fob by either achieving code execution or by unlocking the vehicle or by starting the engine remotely, while successfully attacking the vehicle's CAN system, which allows microcontrollers and other devices to communicate with each other, um, also gets a prize pot of $100,000. Um, elsewhere, successful attacks on the vehicle's infotainment system will warrant payouts of between $35,000 and $85,000, while attacks that compromise uh, the vehicle's Wi-Fi or Bluetooth systems will earn $50,000. Um, and it's not just Tesla's or, or that pound, pound to own is seeking exploits for. Um, they're also looking for exploits in other categories, including virtualization and web browsers for the competition. Um, and this competition this year takes place in Vancouver in March. So lots of money on offer there. Um, and it sounds like, uh, you know, for a good security researcher, they could get a big payday out of that. So should people just be giving up their day jobs uh, to go and become professional bug hunters? Yeah, so I mean, those figures that I just went through definitely may make that sound like a good idea. Um, but some other research that came out this week um, was released by a security company indicates that being a bug hunter may not be quite the gold mine. It can sometimes sound like it is when large bounties, um, like the aforementioned, are reported upon. So a company called Trade of Bits, um, which is a security company, looked at data from HackerOne, which um, obviously works with a lot of companies to run their bug bounty programs. And it said that it found that the top bug hunters discover an average of less than one bug per month, uh, hardly 0.87 of a bug per month. Um, and results in an average bounty earnings that equate to a yearly salary of 34,255 US dollars, um, which according to figures from the US Bureau of Labor Statistics is actually a bit lower than the median wage for exterminators of um, real life bugs in the US state of Mississippi. So while some uh, bug hunters may make the big books, According to this survey, it may not be a career choice that people en masse should be chucking in their day job to pursue. I think I know what job I'd like to do. Yeah. Hunting <laughs> bugs in Mississippi doesn't sound great. No, it doesn't sound too <laughs> okay, uh, moving on to uh, our next story. Uh, it concerns GoDaddy because uh, this week uh, they've been found to be injecting some JavaScript into some of their customers' websites. Uh, Candid, you know something about this, do you? Yeah, so... 
a researcher found that his website, which is hosted with GoDaddy, generated some strange JavaScript errors. And of course, this on its own is probably not newsworthy. Um, But the script issue was that he couldn't really identify any of his own scripts generating those errors. So he started debugging more, digged into it. And while debugging, the researcher found an unknown script that was added to his website, to actually all of his websites, which generated those errors. And I don't know how he reacted, but I can imagine that there was definitely a moment of panic as such a new script could be a nice indication that someone compromised the website and started injecting a malicious JavaScript to do nefarious things, right? Like form jacking or crypto mining. I mean, it would definitely raise my pulse if I find such a script on my own website. But in the end, it turned out that this code is a legitimate GoDaddy real user metric script, which is used by GoDaddy to optimize network experience and identify any bottlenecks that there could be. So the code is automatically added to all websites which are hosted by customers in the US and those who use specific configuration settings with the cPanel. So the big discussion then, of course, started because many users were not aware of this injection practice at all. And the service was enabled by default. So users actually had to opt out of this explicitly. Ah, okay. That sounds bad enough. But luckily, there was nothing malicious uh, in the end. Yes. um, The good news is the JavaScript is no longer served as well. So the service provider actually has turned it off and they're reviewing the process. So they said they might reintroduce it at a later future state, but probably as an opt-in feature, which is probably a smart idea. But I'm sure other hosters had similar things before. So this is just yet another example. And I think there's multiple issues here at play. The mission consent from the user is definitely one thing. But it also demonstrates the potential risk as such a script would make a very juicy target for a supply chain attack, right? I'm not saying that it has happened. There's no indication of a malicious script. But just imagine for a second that someone would have been able to modify that sad script at the source, change it to include something like a crypto miner or password stealer. This would then be distributed to thousands of websites without their knowledge. And that sounds pretty serious for me. Yeah, that really kind of explains uh, the the pitfalls there and and the dangers with these kind of things. And it's not the only security issue with web hosters uh, that's uh, gone public this week, isn't that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, The researcher Paulos uh, Yeberlo looked at five popular hosting services in the US, and unfortunately, he found for all of them simple attacks that worked. So the issues would allow an attacker to take over the customer's account and then modify the website directly. And all of those vulnerabilities are based around cross-site request forgeries and cross-site scripting attacks. So many of the issues actually occurred because of misconfigured cross-origin resource sharing, or short cores. And those so-called core settings are usually designed to prevent some uh, cross-site request forgery attacks from happening. But of course, to make the life of the maintainer easier, Many providers actually keep those rules quite loose and therefore allowing attackers to bypass the restriction with some tricks. And in addition, some of the back, uh, backend process actually contains some weak points in the logic as well. For example, one of the hosters allowed to send a password reset by email, 
But unfortunately, they also allowed to set a new custom email in it. So you could reset the password, but having the password link sent to a custom email, which of course is not a good idea. Hence, it shows that attackers could actually directly go after the website owners as well. A simple phishing email with a link to a specifically crafted website would be enough to hijack a few websites. And once the attacker has the credentials, they can then, of course, modify the whole website directly and uh, add their own malicious script, as we've seen before. And in the report, the researcher actually estimates that up to 7 million websites were at stake with these vulnerabilities here. So... Fortunately, the hosters actually all reacted quickly and fixed most of the raised issues by now. Okay. Now, um, Bridget was earlier talking about smart cars, and now she wants to talk about smart cards, uh, because there was a recent warning from the US Secret Service that has revealed some uh, alarming new practices being adopted by credit card skimmers. Yeah, so we've discussed criminals stealing credit card numbers a lot on this podcast uh, recently, I suppose, especially in the run-up to Christmas, uh, we actually published a blog on our threat intelligence blog, taking a look at point-of-sale scammers who steal the credit card numbers of people who are shopping in physical stores, while we have also been doing research into form jacking, which is a method used by cyber criminals to steal the payment card information of people shopping or making reservations online on an ongoing basis over the last six months or so. And in many cases, the criminals who steal credit card numbers using whichever method they use uh, then go on to sell them en masse on the dark web, uh, where they are purchased by people, by other criminals, who then attempt to you know, cash them out by buying goods or gift certificates or things like that. Um, so yeah, this week, or maybe late last week, Brian Krebs published an article about this warning from the Secret Service, the US Secret Service, um, on his blog. So basically, the Secret Service has warned that criminals cashing out payment cards by using them to buy items in stores are using smart card technology to make themselves appear less suspicious and to decrease the chances of them being caught with, for example, multiple counterfeit credit cards or payment cards. Um, in the US, there's a card called Fuse Card, which uses smart card technology um, to store the payment card details of up to 30 cards on a single smart card device, which looks very similar to just a regular credit or debit card. So obviously that would be very convenient for people who might have multiple credit cards or people who perhaps use separate payment cards for maybe business accounts and their personal accounts, things like that. And um, so the Fuse card displays, it doesn't display any credit card numbers on either side, but what it does have is a small display screen on the front of the card that card holders can then use to change which stored card is to be used to complete transaction. So after the user chooses the card, da- the card data to be used, uh, this data is then made available in the magnetic strip on the back of the card. And these cards can also be used then in ATMs as well to withdraw money as well as being able to be used to um, make payments in stores. Um, so this memo issued by the Secret Service uh, to its financial industry partners said that its, officer, its offices in New York and in St. Louis are currently carrying out active investigations where they have seen these smart cards being misused and used by fraud rings in order to make purchases. So, I mean, the appeal of these cards to cyber criminals is fairly obvious um, and negates the need for them to carry around, you know, a lot of counterfeit cards on their person. And obviously, if they were you know, searched by law enforcement or something, they wouldn't want to, they would have, be difficult to explain away having 20 credit cards on them. 
Um, and also, you know, they no longer need to rifle through uh, these credit cards at the checkout either, which is something, you know, kind of activity might raise the suspicions of staff. And also then if a transaction is declined because maybe the card, you know, the stolen card has been cancelled or something, the fraudster can easily just change to using a different credit card number with no need to go shuffling through credit cards. So I suppose this shows that, you know, developments like these fuse cards, you know, they make more life more convenient for consumers. But I guess this just underlines the fact that fraudsters are never slow about jumping onto these new innovations and new products and using them as well to make their lives as easy as possible too. Yeah, um, just goes to show that there's uh, fraudsters tend to innovate along with uh, yeah, the yeah. Re- real world enterprise. Yeah. Um, now, uh, our final item uh, concerns uh, cryptocurrency attacks because there's been uh, yet another attack on a cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, this one in New Zealand, which said has fallen victim to an attack and has experienced significant losses. Uh, Candid, can you tell us more about what happened here? Yeah, so the New Zealand cryptocurrency exchange called Cryptopia has announced earlier this week that they have been compromised and they have subsequently, of course, shut down the whole website and started an internal investigation. And in addition to the internal investigation, the New York, sorry, the New Zealand police force has officially started an investigation as well. And of course, as usual with ongoing investigations, not much details around the whole hack are known yet. But this unfortunately also leads to wild speculations from external hackers to insider exit strategies that stole all the monies. But the only thing that the exchange itself mentioned in their post is that they expect significant losses. And I'm actually a customer of that sad exchange myself. But I guess uh, it seems like the $50 worth of crypto coins that I had there is nothing compared to the whole sum that is missing by now. As some people started tracing recent transactions, and they found that up to $11 million worth of different crypto coins could have been stolen by the attackers. But again, this is all not confirmed yet, as it could also be that some of it was just transferred to safety by the exchange itself after they discovered the attack. And furthermore, it's also unclear if any of the user data has been accessed. And I mean, not just the focus around the cryptocurrency and the value, but of course also data such as passport numbers or scans of ID cards, which is bad as well if they get stolen. So it looks like this incident will be another data point in the long, long list of cryptocurrency exchanges that have been hacked in the past. In perspective, Cryptopia is actually not even going to make the top 10, as there have been far worse uh, cases before, like CoinCheck in Japan, which lost around 532 million worth of cryptocurrencies in January this year, or BitGrail, which lost around 195 million this February, or of course the infamous Mt. Gox that has lost 473 million back in 2014. So a lot... Alone in the last two years, actually, crypto coins worth of more than 1 billion US dollars, with a B, have been stolen from different online exchange platforms. Yeah, a billion, that's an awful lot of money for cyber criminals. Is there any chance of uh, getting all this money back or even some of it? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for the current crypto case, um, of course, with Cryptopia, but in the past, the money is usually gone for good. Some cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, 
allow you to trace transactions, but with conversions to other cryptocurrencies or mixers, and there's different mixing services available, there are still ways to cash out the money over time. So although in some cases you actually might get lucky um, because at the beginning of this year, there was a 51% attack against the Ethereum Classic currency. And basically this means that through some specific tricks, someone actually managed to take over more than half of the computing power for this specific coin. And therefore they can decide which blocks to verify and which not. So that's the 51% attack. And this results in reorganization of the blockchain or the blocks in the blockchain itself, which could then lead to different coins being spent multiple times, which is a so-called double spending attack. And this is exactly what happened at the beginning of the year. And in the end, the attackers managed to get away with roughly 1.1 million US dollars worth in coins. But last week, someone, probably the attacker, returned 100,000 from the stolen coins back to the exchange. Having said that, don't get your hopes up too high because I guess counting on the remorse of the cyber criminals is definitely a bad strategy. Okay, so an awful lot of virtual money there and uh, an awful lot of risks, I suppose, given the number of attacks. What can users do to protect themselves? Yeah, I guess the usual tips apply, like having a strong password, uh, only use trustworthy services and so on. But while browsing through the tweets after the recent hack, I saw many people lash out that it's the fall of their users themselves because if they keep the money on their online exchange, then it's their own fault. And yes, it's true that the recommended practice is to store crypto coins in a cold offline wallet at home. Uh, there are many options, like from paper wallets where you print out the whole code down to hardware wallets, which are only connected uh, if you want to use them and you need specific fingerprints or anything to access it. Although hardware wallets themselves have proven not to be unhackable as well as recent um, research presentations have shown. But unfortunately, it's not always that simple. As with the current crypto coin market situation, where it's dropping more and more, many people try to make money through the day trading, right? Profiting from the high volatility because holding the coins and just hoping for the future alone does not make you rich quickly anymore. So this, of course, only works if you have your assets ready to be traded at any time. And transferring the funds back and forth each time can take a lot of time. For some coins, it can take more than an hour. And it also costs you a, fee, a small fee each time. So that's not really an option if you want to do trade trading. So in short, yes, there is a high risk with online wallets, even if they use two-factor authentication, as they could be hacked on the back end. And everyone should probably assess the risk he or she is willing to take if you don't plan on spending the, uh, the coins or trading them on a daily basis, then yes, an offline wallet is definitely the safer option to go for. Okay, thanks, Condit. That's some good advice there. Um, now, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, but if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on all future editions. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen intel. If you'd like to read our latest research, uh, check out our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. We'll be back again next week when we'll be once again looking at what's going on in the world of cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.